0: Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcroft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. As always, it is so good to be with you. Another Tuesday evening where we have the opportunity to reflect into the richness of the book of Revelation. We have wrapped up our study and our treatment of chapters 4 to 6. And so what I want to do this evening is just jump right in, jump right into chapter 7, this vision of God's people. Now, this vision of God's people that really focuses in on this idea of God ransoming captive Israel. You know, in Michael Barber's book, Coming Soon, Unlocking the Book of Revelation, that we have really been utilizing for our study on the Book of Revelation, he reflects into the song, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, and of course, that one particular line, Ransom Captive Israel. I mean, do we ever think about what we are actually singing during Advent and Christmas, when we sing these hymns, they are so rich. So many words that are drawn from the beauty and the wisdom of sacred scripture, and certainly in the song, O come, O come, Emmanuel, that line, ransom captive Israel, is one of those very rich lines, a line that surely refers to slavery to sin, right? My dear friends, we shall see that there is something very profound in all of this. That God's actions throughout all of salvation history often reflect and depict a much deeper spiritual reality. In the Old Testament, God dramatizes his people's deliverance from sin by delivering them from what? Slavery. When Israel went into exile, it was the result of the rejection of God's covenant, huh? So deliverance from the exile was always connected with God's coming to set them free from sin. And for this reason, turning from sin is frequently explained by the prophets in terms of returning to the Lord. Likewise, Deuteronomy explains that the exile will end when Israel returns to the Lord. Renowned scholar N.T. Wright, who I know is popular just not among Catholics, but also many Christian denominations, once said, Forgiveness of sins is simply another way of saying return from exile. So this forgiveness for Christian is given through the sacrament of baptism, something we have talked about a great deal over the months and really years here on Seeds of Truth. And because of this, John's vision in so many ways depicts the restoration of Israel from exile in terms of baptismal imagery. Let's consider this a bit closer. If you want to turn your Bibles to chapter 7, verses 1 to 3, we read, After this I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascend from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of our God upon their foreheads. Mm, Beautiful. Now, as Michael Barber highlights, contrary to popular opinion, (laughs) The reason people in the ancient world spoke of the four corners of the earth was not because they simply pictured a flat world with four actual sides. That is not appreciating the depth and the scope of what is going on in the Old Testament. The reason they spoke in terms of the four corners was because they saw the earth as a giant temple. Remember what we talked about in our opening days as we were breaking open this book? The significance of the Jew seen the earth itself as a temple, huh? In the book of Revelation, the earth is the altar upon which the faithful pour out their lives in sacrificial love. What's more, that the angel ascends with the sun in the east may be in allusion to Malachi chapter 4 verse 2. There we read, but for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. Another possibility is that the rising of the sun is a symbol for the resurrection. Huh? In this way, we can imagine how, how the angel comes with the saving power of the resurrected Christ. Now, if you are one who is concerned about receiving this seal of the saints mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 verse 3, If you've been baptized, you've received the seal. Consider, the sealing of the saints is taken from Ezekiel chapter 9. Now, Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 to 6 are very popular verses. Why? Well, (laughs) let's read them. This is Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 to 6. Again, if you have your Bibles, flip to the prophet Ezekiel, thumb to chapter 9, and read with me verses 4 to 6. And the Lord said to him, go through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark upon the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, he said in my hearing, pass through the city after him and smite. Your eyes shall not spare and you shall show no pity. Slay old men outright, young men and maidens, little children and women. Touch no one upon whom is the mark and begin at my sanctuary. Okay, so the word for mark in Hebrew is simply a Hebrew letter, a tau, T A W, for those of you who want to write it on a piece of paper. This is a Hebrew letter which in Paleo Hebrew script looks like a, an X or a plus sign, if you will. The early church fathers saw this as the sign of the cross made on the forehead of believers, one of the great earliest christian writers by the name of tertullian who you have heard me quote before once said this now the greek letter tau and our own letter t is the very form of the cross which he predicted would be the sign on our foreheads in the true catholic jerusalem beautiful beautiful And, and what's in that phrase anyways catholic jerusalem well remember when you start talking about the great covenants with god When you speak of Jerusalem, right, you're speaking of the Great National Covenant. What does the word Catholic mean in the Greek kataholike? Well, international. So the Catholic Covenant is the Great International Covenant. All right. Furthermore, the Greek word for seal was frequently understood as a baptismal image. One of the most uh, important non-biblical books read by Christians in the first century, the Shepherd of Hermas, stated the seal, then, is the water. They descend into the water dead, and they arise alive. Once again, it was the early Christian writer Tertullian who saw Christ's baptism as his sealing. The Catechism of the Catholic Church in paragraph 1121 speaks to this beautifully, that baptism confers a sacramental character or seal by which the Christian shares in Christ's priesthood and is made a member of the church according to different states and functions. Um, By the way, what is a seal in more general terms? Before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I know this might be a word that some of us are familiar with, and we probably are, and we probably are in a very specific context. Now, a seal in biblical times as today is used to guarantee security or indicate ownership, right? Ancient seals were often made of wax, embedded with the the personalized imprint of their guarantor. The Roman authorities would use such a seal to secure our Lord's tomb. A signet ring was also called a seal. So what's important for us to appreciate is the idea of ownership, okay? When God impresses that indelible mark upon our soul, we belong to God. So in this indelible mark, and in this indelible seal, what we are made to appreciate then is the importance of being owned by Christ, not in the context of this relationship from master to slave, no, 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 but from father to son. That's the beauty of our Christian and Catholic faith. So the image in Revelation 7 depicts God's protection of his people from evil. And these people are sealed by his power through baptism, they become his people, they become his family, they become his sons and daughters. In Revelation chapter 7, John sees that God has protected all of his children. They are not, however, necessarily protected from physical harm. In fact, they are called to what? Not to get too ahead of ourselves, but in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, we read that the children of God are called to love not their lives, even unto death. Rather, God protects his church from a greater threat. What do we read in Matthew chapter 10? verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. So, Matthew 10, verse 28, some pretty important verses. So, we are not to fear human agents of persecution. Many of friends, men can impose suffering and death on the body but what they cannot do is impose death upon the soul. And so Jesus uses this distinction between body and soul to contrast the relative value, if you will, of earthly life with the absolute good of eternal life in heaven. One of the tricks of Satan is to get us thinking that what we see here on earth is the sum total of our purpose, is the sum total of all revelation. And in doing so, what do we do? We drown out divine revelation, which we can discern even in creation itself, as Paul says. Okay, so important reflection as we move uh, through these verses. Now, what about chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, the 144,000? Now, I know a number of you have asked me questions about this, and as I've kind of talked about it before, Just wait until we get there, and I'll be able to explain this in context. Well, here you go. We'll read these verses, and we'll get into the 144,000 that so many of you want to talk about. This is Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 to 8. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed out of every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 sealed out of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 sealed out of the tribe of Benjamin. Okay now I know a lot of you have questions about this because when the Jehovah's Witness comes to your door, they claim ownership on this 144,000. They say that they are special individuals who will make it to heaven. According to them, the rest, the great multitude spoken of in verse 9, will live on earth. The problem with this is that John later says that a great multitude is already in heaven in Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, right? This is why. It is so important not to isolate a text and always interpret the text within the larger whole. In this case, chapter 7, within the larger scope of the book of Revelation, chapter 19. All that being said, who are the 144,000? Well, John tells us, does he not? They are those who are from the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, why 144,000? Because this number in antiquity represents the full number of Israelites saved, if you will. 144,000 is a symbolic number of 12 times 12, which is 144, right? Times a thousand. John seems to show that the 12 tribes are those restored in the church under the 12 apostles. This has us going back to the gospel of Matthew, right? Where we have the 12 apostles judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Okay? So 1,000 is a number symbolizing completeness. But, as Michael Barber posits, is it Israel that is portrayed here? Could this be symbolic too? In other words, does John see actual Israelites, or does he see the church as the replacement of Israel? Perhaps Israel is merely a symbol for the church, God's people. To better understand what is going on here, we ought to go back to God's Old Testament promises, and specifically the major events in Israel's history from David onward. In 1000 BC, we have King David, who reigns over all 12 tribes. In 930 BC, the northern tribes break away and form their own kingdom called the House of Israel, or Ephraim. The southern kingdoms become known as the House of what? Judah. We've talked about this so much, right? The break of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in 722 BC, the Assyrians carried the northern tribes off into exile and scattered them to the nations. They are never heard from again. In 586 BC, the Babylonians carried the southern tribes off into exile. And in 538 BC, the southern tribes, the Judahites, as they are called, returned from their exile and start rebuilding the Judahites of course being the Jews they come back under the rule of King Cyrus Cyrus of Persia Now notice two things about the history of Israel Not all Israelites are Jews Jews are only those from the southern kingdom of Judah right Those who belonged to the northern kingdom were non-Jewish Israelites Secondly only the Jews from the southern house returned from exile. Those from the northern tribes who were carried away were never heard from again. So what happened to those northern tribes? Today they are spoken of as the lost tribes of Israel. Earlier I was mentioning the Jehovah's Witness. Well, what about the Mormons? Well, the Mormons believe these tribes came to America and settled here. A claim that is neither biblical or archaeological. Okay, that is to say there's no biblical or archaeological evidence to support this view. Indeed, the northern tribes were very lost. Even the rabbis debated whether or not they would ever return. The Old Testament, though, seems to be pretty clear on this matter. According to Isaiah, Jeremiah, and the rest of the prophets, God promised to bring them all back. Did he not? He promised a restoration of all of Israel. Brothers and sisters, what we are talking about right now is so foundational, not only to understand what is going on in chapter 7, but really the narrative of salvation history. Why? Why is it so important for us as faithful Christians to appreciate that God promised a restoration of all Israel? Well, this restoration would include the northern and the southern kingdoms. The famous prophecy that comes to us from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, could help us out here, huh? Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In that chapter and verse, you have the only explicit use of new covenant, which, of course, is very interesting. So in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31, this idea of a reunited Israel certainly is on the forefront. And this is what you find in the prophets, is it not? Now, we can spend the remainder of our time together this evening going through all of the great prophecies. I will just read one. We've already read from Jeremiah. We'll read from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 11 to 13. In that day, the Lord will extend his hand yet a second time to recover the remnant which is left of his people from Assyria, from Egypt, from Pathros, from Ethiopia, from Elam, from Shinar, from Hamath, and from the coastlands of the sea. He will raise and ensign for the nations and will assemble the outcasts of Israel and gather the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth, the jealousy of Ephraim shall depart, and those who harass Judah shall be cut off. Ephraim shall not be jealous of Judah, and Judah shall not harass Ephraim. So <laughs> what you have here is a clear depiction of the reunification of the twelve tribes of Israel. So this is God's promise, huh? that he would reunify the twelve tribes of Israel. But it seemed impossible to fulfill. After all, here you have the northern tribes scattered throughout all the nations. They assimilated into other nations. They intermarried and became one with them. How could they ever return? Well, Paul explains how. We have to remember that Paul was the great missionary to the Gentiles, but not to the Gentiles alone. Paul himself explained that he held fast to the promises of to which our 12 tribes hope to attain. If you were to go to the book of Acts, chapter 26, verse 7, you read of Paul speaking, again, of this reunification. So then the question that begs to be asked is, why did Paul go to the Gentiles? Because that's where the descendants of Israel were. His hearers might not have heard that. Somewhere way back in their family tree, Israelites had intermarried with their ancestors. But that's not the point. God did, right? In this respect, Paul compares his situation to whose? Elijah. Elijah worried that there were no righteous Israelites left in his day. And what did God say? I will leave 7,000 in Israel. 1 Kings 19, verse 18. Elijah didn't know who they were. God just said, don't worry, I know where they are. So just like Elijah, Paul didn't know exactly who the remnant of Israel was. But that's okay. As Michael Barber tells us, God God was keeping track, huh? So Paul's mission then was to preach to the Gentiles, yes. However, Paul explains to the Romans how all of Israel would be saved. What did he say in Romans chapter 11, verses 25 to 26? A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of gentiles come in and so all israel will be saved so the restoration of the tribes represents the fulfillment of god's covenant promise to israel so all that being said the vision of the salvation of the hundred forty-four thousand reveals that quite simply god has kept his promise a righteous remnant from all the 12 tribes has been saved Okay, let us turn to our Bibles, chapter 7, verses 9 to 12, the great multitude. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude of which no man could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels stood round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures, and they fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Wow. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) So whereas in chapter 7, verses 4 to 8, John saw the 144,000 saved from Israel, In verses 9 to 12, he sees a group from every nation, from all tribes. God saves Israel and the Gentiles. My dear friends, this was an important part of the new Exodus hope. In the first Exodus, God saved Israel by delivering them from the Egyptians. In the new Exodus, Israel will return to God. But this time, the nations are coming with him. Those in this vision hold palm branches in their hands. Certainly, many of us know that palm branches were often used in the Old Testament to celebrate the restoration of the temple. Here, in the book of Revelation, the saints are celebrating their admittance into the true temple of heaven. In just a couple of verses in verse 15, we read about how these saints are depicted as serving in the temple of God in heaven. Amen. Now, I wanted to stop here with the time remaining because I think it's important for us to go back to the beginning of what we talked about this evening and to focus in on that word seal, not as some abstract theological principle or word, but something that signifies new life, life in the spirit. It would be far too easy for us to just talk about the mark and and, and the towel and and the seal and to just move on. But all of this signifies that we are a new creation in Christ. And as a new creation in Christ, we are called to live as sons and daughters of God in a way that communicates this new vibrancy, if you will. Earlier, I read from Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 31. And I said that it's pretty important that, that the only time you read of the New Covenant in the Old Covenant, that is, the New Covenant in the Old Testament, it's talking about how when the coming of the Messiah comes, the law will no longer be written on stone, but impressed upon the heart. How can the, the law be impressed upon the heart? Well, my dear friends, in sacred scripture, the law is about relationship with God. The external laws of the Old Testament were signs and marks of your covenant relationship with God. So there's a new law in the new covenant, and that new law is the actual gift of the Holy Spirit. And now with that gift, we are endowed with the grace and the power to cry to God, Abba, Father. And what's more is He has given us the grace to encounter Him in each and every moment, You see, in the old covenant, they didn't have that grace that we have now been given in the gift of the Holy Spirit. So when we invoke the Holy Spirit, this gift that has been given to us in baptism, what we do is we live a life in the Spirit. And that life in the Spirit is caught up in the great gifts of the Holy Spirit. Wisdom, understanding, knowledge, piety, counsel, fear of the Lord. These great gifts that come to us that strengthen us to be better stewards of just not this gift we've been given at baptism, but also all that has been given to us. Again, I wanted to close with this reflection because I think it's so important that we don't get lost in all of these images and, and numbers and living creatures and, and all of the, the grandeur of the book of Revelation that we forget. It all comes back to that great passage that comes to us in Romans 8 verses 14 and following, that we have not been given a a spirit of slavery in which we fall back into fear, but the spirit of adoption in which we cry, Abba, Father. And yes, we've been sealed with this. We belong to God. But in belonging to God, we are to proclaim God in every place and in every town. Amen. Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of this evening, to be reminded that we are always called to be caught up in the Spirit, like that of John, to see the ways in which you reveal yourself to us, in all of the people we meet, and in all the circumstances we find ourselves in. We pray these things through your most holy and precious name. Amen, and God bless you.